from top and it's where older stuffy people go and listen to a man in a dress rattle on about some ancient gods. Ask those same people perhaps about what they think of Christians and they'll probably describe them as, you know, do-gooders, think they're better than everyone else, look down on the rest of society, a bit judgmental. Scratch a bit more under the surface, you might get to the fact that church and religion is a place of conflict. Can't even agree within the Christian church about things. And then you've got Catholics and Protestants, and then you've got Christians and Muslims, you've got all this conflict. So one of my friends once said, I can't get with religion, Andy. It just causes too many arguments, and it causes every war. I did correct him, it does not cause every war, but that's the reputation religion and Christianity sadly had. Very few would actually comment about what we believe in Jesus Christ. That would not be the general comment. They more talk about what they see and how we act and what they perceive from outside, what they're looking at and seeing demonstrated. And the fact is that the church and Christianity has got a bit of an image problem in our modern society. And it's generally related to how we behave and not actually what we fundamentally believe. So my proposition today is that while we can read something like the letter we're going to look at, the letter to the Ephesians, and we could nod, and we could say the description that I just gave is completely wrong. The church isn't like that. It's not like that. But thinking and reflecting and intellectualizing it is simply not enough. Is this, can we click on? Try and get the Prezi going? Here we go. <laughs> Try and move it on for me. Or click on it and I'll do it from here. Okay, I'll talk to it and maybe we'll get it going in a minute. But I use the kind of Ed Sheeran thinking out loud as a principle. Thinking out loud isn't enough. So I want to cover it slightly differently today. There you go. I'm going to work in as well. Go on to the next one for me. Um, I'm going to cover it this way. Reading it all out loud, living it all out loud, and declaring it all out loud. And that's when we're going to talk today a bit about baptism. So, reading it all out loud, living it all out loud, and declaring it all out loud. You're going to have to click. This isn't working. So, do you click on one for me until that gets working? Click on one more. So... I said the letter to the Ephesians. So here in my hand is that letter. This is the letter that we've been studying in church, the letter to the Ephesians. And let me say to uh, Lorraine, if you don't mind, I'll choose you because I like picking on you. In this letter, here in my hand, is some of the best instruction possible for how to live a fruitful life. How to not only understand who you are, but how to be set free and then how to use that freedom, use that freedom as a way to change the world around you and the world at large. Would you be interested in reading this letter? I would hope so. It's only three sides of A4, that's all it takes up, and it'll take about 10 to 15 minutes depending on your reading speed. So I assume Lorraine would want it. So let me take this letter, this marvellous letter, Okay, so this bit is about how amazingly blessed you are and you've been saved and elevated to the highest place. There you go. That's that bit. Um, 
this next bit. This is a bit about why you've been given the most incredible gift of life and you did nothing to deserve it. Nothing at all to earn it. You want that bit? I guess you would. And, and this bit here is about how you can see other people in a way that will stop division in society. It will tear down every dividing wall of racism, sexism and separation. So I guess you'd like that bit as well. So there's two more bits of a great, great, great letter. Um, carrying on. This bit is about an incredible mystery. This part here. An incredible mystery revealed. This is how you're going to receive deep, wide and high unconditional love and strength will rise by an external force. So I guess if I walked over now, I'm going to stop walking because my step is going mad. Uh, you want that bit as well. All right. That bit's great too. Um, now, from this point onwards, it gets a little bit different. This bit is how you, what you're going to have to do about it. This bit is how you're going to need to look at all that great stuff that I just gave you, including this bit. And this bit tells you you have to change in some way. Aha. Uh-huh. So I guess, yes, and maybe not. Maybe I'll, Andy could keep hold of that one. In fact, most of what you're going to read from this point on is how you're going to have to change. You can't just keep on doing what you're doing. You can't just keep living your life like it is and it doesn't matter. That you'll need to love people you might not want to, submit and sacrifice even preparing to get armour on against attack. So this bit's a little bit harder than that bit that I've just given you. So maybe we'll just, we'll just kind of not worry about that bit. We'll just go with that. That'll get you to Ephesians end of three. You see, it's nice to think like that. This book, if you don't know the book of Ephesians and you don't know your Bible, the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters of it are all just out about how amazing God is, like how much he loves us, how much grace he's just lavished out upon us, how you don't have to do anything to earn his favor. You just have to believe in him. And it's brilliant. It's brilliant. It's amazing. But think about it. When you write a letter to someone, you expect them to read it all, don't you? You expect them to read the whole thing. Not chunk it up into bits, your letter, if you've ever written a letter, no one writes letters anymore, do they? But if you type a letter, you expect the person to actually read it because it's got some kind of a point in it. It gets somewhere. It's not just a, a collection of random thoughts. A letter usually has some kind of a purpose. You don't write your letters. Chapter 1, how's the holiday? Chapter 2, how are the kids? Chapter 3, you owe me 50 quid. You don't kind of write them broken up in this way with like subheadings, like greetings, holidays, uh, paying off debts. You don't kind of write that as your titles and then break it up. If you do, one, don't write to me, and two, get help. That's not, it's not a good letter to write. It's not an entertaining thing to read. So I've never had a letter from someone that broke up into chunks, and yet we do that with Scripture Part of the issue with the way in which the Bible has been separated and broken up into chapters. So if you've been to church, I'm going to say we're going to read from, you know, Ephesians 3, chapter 7 to 19. That stuff never existed. That's all from the 13th century. We added the chapters and brought the structure in to make it easier to kind of break down and use and read. But actually, that's not how it's written. That letter is written just like a normal letter. And it's expected that you're going to read it completely end to end. And if we break it up, we can break it up intellectually and literally break it up. And say, well, I'll, I'll take these bits, but I won't bother going on to any of the other parts of it. I'll just leave that alone, or I'll read it over a long period of time and 
kind of digest parts of it, but actually it's good to think about it because you lose the connections. You lose the flow of the whole letter as you would if you uh, read any letter in like seven sittings. Someone sends you a letter and you read one paragraph and then two, a week later read another paragraph, a week later another paragraph. You're going to lose the flow of it. And frankly, you miss a couple of church meetings and you're going to miss a whole chunk of the letter. It doesn't quite work out like that. The flow of the letter of Ephesians is really just two major, major parts to it. And even those aren't really like hard themes. They kind of move in and out of each other. But we're appointing this letter from Paul and it's about to switch from what we believe. We call that doctrine. If you heard that term, that's what we believe. To actually, what are you going to do about it? And that's like the application part of it. So we, we're moving into that part of it. So one to three, now we're going into four to six, and so we're getting onto the application. Remembering it's a letter. Remember it's a letter. But it's a letter that says, because of this, do this. As you would see many letters. I'm writing you because, and therefore I, you, I think you should. And it could be many letters that we would write. So, the church he's writing to doesn't have an issue. It's actually a letter of encouragement. In many ways, he's writing to them to give them some advice. Because of these things, you will need to consider these things going forward. Encouragement to live the Christian life out loud, to make it absolutely evident that we've been changed. And Paul is transitioning in order we might address some likely issues that are going to crop up in our lives and in relationships, using those three chapters as a way to motivate us to be inspired for all the challenges that are ahead. In Martin Lloyd-Jones' book about this, he's a great writer, he says, it's, be careful, you can compare it to like Peter. Now, Peter was on a mountain, Jesus gets transformed, and he sees the glorified Jesus. He sees Jesus in his glory, and it's like amazing. And, he, and, it, there's, and then he wants to build a tabernacle to stay there. To just stay there, and like, oh, you're amazing, you're, I can see you as you are. But he said, no, go, down. you've got to take it all down. This is not the place to hang around You need to get back down into the people. Get back down and speak of who I am. Face what's back down the mountain. So because of the love and the grace of God that has come to us and set us free from the consequences of all our sin and seated us with Christ. If you don't know what that means, it's really good to be seated with Christ. It means that you have been elevated and put right with God so you can literally be seated with him. We now need to do some stuff about it. And it all gets sums up in one transitional word. A single word. I'm actually reading a 12-page chapter on this word. The transition, and it's... Let's see if I can get this to work now. Oh, good. Therefore. Therefore. Many have said, kind of, it's a bit corny, but if there's a therefore in the Bible, you need to find out what it's there for. Remember, that's corny, but remember, if there's a therefore in the Bible, you need to figure out what it's there for. So remember, God loves all people. He has sent Jesus to set all people free. We've done nothing to earn it. That freedom is a gift found by just believing in Jesus, that he is a sacrifice for sin. And the power of the Spirit has been poured out upon his people. Therefore, therefore, I, Paul, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is, n- there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to you Call One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, a Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So therefore, 
I urge you to do something. So we're going to look at that together. We're going to look at what I mean by living it out loud. So living it out loud. So if I was to work my way through all this scripture one by one, it would take ages. We'd be here for hours. So I'm going to have to go through it quite a high level and kind of bring it all together because there's so much meat in those words as you go through them. But I'll, I'll talk you through the core of what it means and lead us towards the fact that today two people are going to make a public declaration through baptism of what it means when you live it out loud and you declare it out loud. So firstly, we need to thank Paul, the apostle, for being quite realistic with us. He's urging us, like he's appealing to us. In that word urge, he recognises effort will be required. I urge you to walk in the manner, i.e. you might not if you're not careful. Secondly, he's saying walk, which means we've got to move on. We've, got to, we've sat and we've heard great stuff and now the call is to, to move, to start to move into it and to live in it. Thirdly, by saying in the manner worthy of your calling, he's laying down like an inverted rebuke in some way because we're in danger of not living in a manner worthy of our calling. So in my Andy Smith simple English, I'd say don't call yourself a follower of Christ if you can't behave like one. Because you mock Jesus, if you respond to the call of grace and into a new way of life, then you act like you have no idea what it actually means. Let me say that one more time. Don't call yourself a follower of Christ, me too, if you can't believe, like, you can't behave like one. If you can't behave like one, because you're going to mock Jesus, if you respond to a call of grace, into a new way of life, and then you act like you have no idea what it means. For me, everything Paul is telling us is to reflect what God has just done for us when we believe in him. That's a recurring theme you're going to see throughout this section of scripture. Over the next few weeks, we're going to cover it more and more. Please come back and hear more about it. We are to reflect the nature and the character of God in Jesus. So like he's saying, read the letter to the end, please. There's a whole bunch of stuff in here that I'm urging you to do that will cause you to live a life worthy of your calling. So let me load all that on a hammer, bang us over the head with it for a bit. Call yourself a follower of Christ. Look at Christians, they need to be practicing these things. Humility is the act of being humble. In some versions it uses the term lowliness. God sent his son himself to be born in a feeding trough, in a stable. Unlike the children of Mr. Trump, his his child sheds all majesty, wants to be recognized for nothing, born into a stable. He has all the majesty and the glory. He's God with us. And yet he's born into a stable to prove the humility of God. I will humble myself and come to you in this way. He lowers himself so that we don't ever feel or consider that we are above others. Jesus is God's humility. We are to be a humble people who don't think so much of ourselves but think a lot of others. God thinks a lot of us. It's not not put yourself down territory. This is not thinking of yourself better than others. The next thing is gentleness. We were children of wrath, deserving the anger of God because we took and still take all of his creation for granted. And I'm not meaning just the planet, I'm meaning people as well. We've been pretty bad to each other. I've been pretty bad to people in my life. Not treated people particularly well. I haven't done something heinous, I'm not some monster, but I haven't treated people well. I'm not proud of the way I've behaved. I'm not proud of the way the planet operates. I'm not proud of the way my country does what it does and lets other countries starve. I'm not proud of all these things. It's not in a great shape. 
I'm part of that system. Yet he deals, he could be very rightly angry with us. Yet he deals with us so gently. We make mistakes, we do things that would offend God, but it says in scripture, he is slow to anger, abounding in love. He is always forgiving. God is gentle and we need to be gentle with other people. Patient. Some say that word is replaced by long-suffering. God has put up with my sin, your sin, all the naughty habits, and still, he says, I forgive you, no matter what you've done. If you wander off the path of goodness, he's still saying, come back. And if you don't come back now, I'm still not going to give up on you. I'm not going to stop loving you. I keep saying, come back. He suffers our sin. He suffers our transgressions. That's the wandering off the path you heard spoken of this morning. Long-term. God is really, really very patient with you and me. And we need to be patient with other people. Bearing with one another's. Frankly, God puts up with a lot. We say one thing, we do another. We make huge commitments and we don't follow through. We're unable to tolerate people for too long if they're not the ones that we really get on well with. Yet when we slip up, he bears with us. He does not stop loving us because we're a bit annoying. God is forbearing and we need to bear with one another in love. Now that sounds all good, right? Yeah, so that sounds like a nice bunch of behaviours and characteristics to have. It's not possible. Sure, you can put up with the people you like, the ones that you're close to. Remember at school when everyone clicks together in their little cliques and they really get on well, but they're a bunch of numpties and we don't even like another school for no reason that anyone could ever figure out. When I grew up, I don't know what it's like now, but we used to fight with other schools. We had no idea why. Why do we hate everyone from Luton? Sorry if you're from Luton, by the way, because we're from what? I'm from Harrow, everywhere. Anyway, I'm supposed to hate people from Eton. Why would I hate people from Eton? Because there's some sports thing that went on once. We factionalise. We get comfortable with the people we're with. and I can put up with you lot, but that lot, and that can come into so many situations, especially in a church, by the way. I'm sorry, but that's bad news. Stick a mixture of cultures, ages in a room, and say you're going to spend two or three hours together at minimum a week, minimum, and see how it collectively starts to factualise and disintegrate, if you're not careful. Put a man and a woman together, add a few kids, some emotional stuff and some financial tension, and it can start getting quite tough. Human nature is not naturally humble, gentle, patient or forbearing. It's so easy to fall out with people, physically, literally and virtually these days. All I hear sometimes from upstairs, my daughter is like, she'll come downstairs and say, so-and-so is falling out with so-and-so, and that's had an argument with so-and-so, and they're not talking to so-and-so, and this person said a really horrible thing. You're thinking, when? Just now. All on my phone. Watch them fall out and great friends fall apart and disintegrate. So I'm not just talking about inside church, I'm talking about outside church too. We forget that God loved us when we were actually very sinful. So how are we going to be humble, patient, gentle and forbearing when we see so much frustrating stuff in the world from Trump to country music it's all wrong <laughs> I have to get that in once a quarter just wrong country music just so you know it's just not right I'll explain if you want to know later my granny fell over a cliff strange music And inside the church, when we disagree how another church does something, or even 
our own and we think, well, they shouldn't be that way. That's not the way you should be. I'm going to go to Hillsong. It's much better than this for the music. I think St. Luke's is my kind of church. I'll go down there because I don't quite like the way you're doing it right now. How long do you think, this came to me this morning as I was driving in, my father died in his 70s and I don't know if he ever gave his life to the Lord. I pray to God in the last moments maybe he did. But if he did, then God was patient with him for 70 years or 60 years from 10 years older when he could make his own mind up maybe. 60 years of patience, not giving his life to God. And God kept, was always saying, any time now, George, any time now, still here, still waiting, still here. Your dad, your husband, week or two? How old was he? 82. So 70 years, God was patient. Plus, to saying, I'm still here, still loving you, any minute now. Church goes a bit wobbly for three months and we're out of here. Someone upsets us over a bad text or a bad tweet and can't talk to them anymore. It's not reflecting God's heart. The answer actually is, it's really hard to do in your own strength. That's why there's unity of the spirit mentioned here. When you find you can't tolerate people or a person or you feel the tension rising. I don't want to say that it's not about just trying harder, but in some regards it is about trying harder, but it's calling on the Spirit to help you, to be more than just someone who can put up, actually to be loving, caring, forbearing. You need to be strong. You need to be a strong person to be patient, gentle, when people and communities aren't matching your expectation. We said this morning, strength will rise when we wait upon the Lord. Strength will rise. Strong to be forgiving. Strong. Really strong. To think, I have been wronged and you have done that wrong. But I'm not going to hold it over you. I'm just going to be the first one to say, I forgive and I don't. I'm patient. I want to be patient, Lord. Help me be patient. They're really winding me up. Forbearing. Gentle when I want to be. Help me to do that because it reflects who you are. If you've fallen out with someone in the last three months and you haven't put it right and you just can't, You still feel you need to stand your ground and not back down. Ask yourself, how does not backing down line up with being humble, gentle, patient and forbearing? The answer is, it doesn't. And I'm not talking to you like I've never done it myself. I've held grudges for years about the way people have behaved. And God's teaching me at the same time as as you, maybe. If God gave us all we deserved, we'd be crushed. But he backed down. He forgave every wrong that you've ever done and loaded it all on his son, Jesus. God, holy and right, backs down. Says, I won't judge you. I'll give you a a way out. And what Paul is saying is if you need to live it out loud to show the world and those close to you, God showed me all these things. And so I'm going to swallow my pride, which is a sin. And I'm going to humble myself and I'm going to back down from my frustrations. Do that in your own strength? No. I don't think so. Not me anyway. You know it, you're better than me. You'll say sorry, and you'll do this. So I'm really, really sorry. And what are you going to say? I'm really, really sorry about that, but... Oh, you're not going to say anything. That's sort of a conditional. That's not the way in which God forgives. We need the help of the Spirit. We're a people of the Spirit, capital S. 
So by looking to him, we're able to do this. If you feel today you're intolerant of people, intolerant of church, intolerant of the elders, intolerant of me, intolerant of your spouse or something that was said wrong to you sometime and was handled the wrong way and you just can't let it go, here's the rebuke that we can carry with us. It mocks God. Later in the letter, it says it grieves the spirit to retain bitterness. It mocks God because he's forgiven you and me everything and back down from all our sin. We're going to need Holy Spirit help sometimes to sort these things out. So we will be trying to pray today. It's going to be difficult because we've got baptisms. Everyone's going to be milling around. But I'll be back in this room at some point. If you want to come back to be prayed for, please come back and we can pray with you. To be helped by the Holy Spirit, to be filled with the Holy Spirit in a way that helps you deal with some of your frustrations. Because whether other people know it or not, you can't take all the good stuff from Ephesians 1 to 3 and then be totally selfish with it. It's kind of offensive to do that. There's all the grace and love and goodness I've been given, but... If you're not feeling it now, good. Well, great. But let it be a lesson for the future. When you find yourself suffering, you're going to need Holy Spirit help. Right. Declaring it out loud. Declaring it out loud. So let me be clear. I'm going to homogenize. Great word, homogenize, if you know what it means. Blend in stuff together. Can't be separated again. Do you ever, anyone remember like cream on top of milk? Do you remember that? Anyone old enough to say yes? Yeah, look. A lot of grey hairs going, hmm, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> Used to be you got gold top, which was like, was that half cream? And then silver top, which had cream, and then there was one which had no cream. But you could see the cream. Then they figured out how to homogenize it, which means blend it together so it never separates again. So that's why you today have homogenized milk. You don't get that separation. I'm going to do that kind of principle here with this part of Scripture. Kind of push it together, blend it together, and say, what's the key message? And I think it's okay, because when I study what Paul was leading us to here, the sequence of what you're going to see here isn't really an accident. It leads somewhere. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. Under one God the Father. The power of one comes to mind. The oneness that keeps coming up is the declaration of something. It's a declaration of unity. Unity, unity, unity. It's saying we're not factionalised as Christians because we believe we are one body under one spirit with one hope. Whatever you call your branch of Christianity, that needs to be true. So remember, Paul's, well, you may not know, Paul's talking to a church here that's a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. Jewish people who followed God religiously and a bunch of people who really didn't, did all a bunch of other stuff, have suddenly been pushed together into a church. They're very much apart and now they've been forced together. They would look down or look up or think one's a snob and one's a slob. They would have difficulty with with each other. So they're leagues apart and in many ways they're now going to have to be unified together, put together to live together. And Paul says, no, we're going to have to think about this, we are one body, one spirit working in us, based on one hope placed in Jesus Christ. Sorry. And he goes into the bit that I'm going to kind of homogenize um, and close on it when we get ready to baptize these two lovely people today. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. <clears throat> so let me go to the end. One baptism. That's actually, frankly, in itself a little bit controversial. Does he mean the way to baptise people? The water on the head? The full submersion? Whatever other methodologies there might be out there? No. I don't think Paul's talking about the means. He's talking about baptism as the meaning of it. 
that is something different. It, sac- it signifies something. Lord, faith, baptism. Baptism is the signification of something. It's not about the water. One way to do it. One methodology. It's much more than that. Why do I say this? Well, I want to pose a question, unpack it quickly, and discover what baptism is probably really a, de- a demonstration of. question is this. Are we, God's people, supposed to only be baptised, us Christians, only be baptised in the name of Jesus? Are we Christians supposed to only be baptised in the name of Jesus? Now, the fact I'm asking, asking makes you think, and oh, I thought the answer should be yes, but now I'm not so sure. I thought it was supposed to be yes, but I'm not going to say it, because he's going to tell me no. Am I right? Yeah. So, why did I ask? Well, can you get hold of a, your Bible if you've got one, or your little app, whatever you've got on your phone, and um, Google will do it too, and look for 1 Corinthians 10, verse 2. Having told you the Bible is unnecessarily cut up into chunks, this is why it's useful, because I'll give you a reference. 1 Corinthians 10, and verse, I'll read 1 and 2. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea. Talking about the Red Sea parting, the story of Moses, yeah? And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So, firstly, this is about the parting of the Red Sea. And despite the amount of water that would have been stacked up either side, I doubt people were being dunked sideways, like, this is a new way to baptise, sideways, into Moses. Baptism is an outward declaration of saying, but but Moses is a person, he's not a god. He's a person. How can you be baptised into a person? Doesn't that cause some question mark? Baptism is an outward declaration of something. It symbolises, in our case, purification and regeneration through Jesus, but it's actually got a much bigger meaning than that. The outward declaration through water that we're going to do today is about dying to self and a regeneration in Christ. But it's actually about lordship, about faith in Jesus. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. What Paul means here is that we are totally submitted to Jesus Christ as Lord. He's the one we're going to look to and he's the one we're going to put our faith in and he's the one we're going to follow. Before Jesus, we were lords to ourselves, given into our own cravings and our sins. I can testify that to that myself. When we become a Christian, we're supposed to die to that and we look to Jesus to guide us. And we start to desire that sin no more. He leads us in paths of righteousness. To be baptised into Moses meant that right now, Moses, we are totally behind you. You're in charge. Tell us where to go. I think you might have something going. You've just parted an ocean or a sea. We're following you. Lead us. We submit to you your will because you know the path we're going to need to take. So figuratively, we're baptising ourselves, we're saying we are literally under your guidance to get us through this, this situation. So taking that imagery for a minute, picture this just like a sea, wide and wavy, and in that sea, under the waves, is all your sin, the naughty stuff that separates you from God. And it's like sharks, you know they're down there and they intend to eat you up. There's a lot down there, because we've been doing it for years. 
from the lust of things, people, money, possessions, addictions, sinful acts, all this kind of stuff. Jesus comes and he parts it, a line straight down the middle, like the Red Sea. Suddenly it's all going to be piled up left and right, all that stuff. And down the centre is a pathway through and Jesus says, follow me. Take my way. And I will keep that sin piled up from you. Put your faith in me and I'll push it away as far as the east is from the west. Your sin will have no hold over you anymore. It will be gone if you follow me. If not, well, I can let go of the waves and that sea will come back. Swim as long as you can, but eventually this stuff will drown you. Jesus says, believe in me, repent of your sin and put me as your Lord, not yourself. Follow my ways. Let me show you a path of righteousness. So letting him guide us in humility, gentleness, patience, and by the Spirit empowering us to walk that path. So today, Emma and Daniel are going to be baptised, not just as an expression of the old has gone and the new has come, which is an amazing thing to express and declare, but it's to declare that I will follow him. He's my Lord. I want to be baptised to follow your leadership to guide me in my life. It's a transfer from the realm of the world to the kingdom of Christ. In Colossians 1, 13 to 14, it says this, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, Jesus, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. So when Christians or the church justifiably get criticised for being factional, judgmental, impatient, lacking in humility, or we can be accused of that, it's not because Jesus has failed to lead us, it's because the church and the Christians took all the good stuff from Ephesians 1-3 to and ignored the Lord's leading. Brought to us in 4-6, in the rest of the letter, Paul lays out so many things. So as I said at the beginning, read the letter, live it out, Declare it out. And to that end, as I finish, what I'm going to do is I've got a whole bunch of the letter here. I'm going to put them on chairs by the two doors as we exit out. Take a copy of the letter, three pages of A4. It's font size 11, I think, so I didn't do like font size 6 to cram it on. Three pages, 10 to 15 minute read. Read it right the way through. Don't read it in chunks. Take a copy, sit down tonight and read it. Because it's a, it's a letter to us about how, to, how amazing we've been blessed if we receive Jesus and what we should then do as a consequence of it. What we should pursue, the sort of life we could live that would declare out loud, live out loud and tell everyone, you know what, Jesus, God saved me, Jesus Christ is amazing. He loves me so much, I'm just going to show love, patience, forbearing, kindness, gentleness to many others. So I'll leave these there for you to, to read. But let's now move on into baptism and two people that are going to declare it. There's a huge